you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Tim Seymour, the big three tonight. Tonight on Fast, we're tracking the after-hours action shares of Uber, Roku, and Etsy. All three stocks on the move right now in earnings. We're breaking down their numbers straight ahead. Plus, GM hits the brakes. The stock falling nearly 9%. We'll tell you how our traders are playing this big drop. And later, leveling the playing field, what SEC Chair Gary Gensler said today about dark pools. That got our attention, got a lot of your attention, too. The full details straight ahead. But we start off with the stock story of the day. Robinhood taking investors on a joyride. The stock surging as much as 81 percent before triggering several trading halts early in the session. Robinhood closing out the day with a gain of just 50 (laughs) percent. It's now up 85 percent since going public on Thursday. So what's driving the wild action shares of Robinhood? Let's kick things off with Kate Rooney's got the story. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, quite a turnaround for Robinhood. The stock touched $85 earlier. That is well above where it debuted last week. Robinhood stock ended the day around $70 per share. It was the second most traded name on the Nasdaq today, only behind AMD, and it was halted a few times for volatility today. As far as trading volume, it surpassed its IPO day with more than $8 billion worth of shares changing hands. The stock is still seeing pretty thin trading. So that's thanks to some of those lockup periods for certain investors, meaning fewer shares are available to trade. I'm told that brought a lot more volatility today. Retail interest is another big factor. It is the most mentioned stock on Reddit. At least it was today, according to data from Thinknum, with more mentions than both GameStop and AMC and momentum trading as well. That is a factor. There's likely hedge funds looking to jump in on some of this action. Short interest, though, does not appear to be a factor. It tends to be pretty expensive to short a stock like Robinhood so soon after an IPO. That is thanks to the lack of shares out there to borrow. I talked to S3 partners about this earlier. They say there is some short interest, but it was really the long side driving Robinhood's prices today. Melissa. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rooney on Robinhood. Um, quite a roller coaster over the past couple of days. And, and indulge me in the irony here that the online platform that enabled meme stocks to become a thing, these Reddit darlings, has become one itself. So, Dan, what do you think the implications are here? Well, it's fabulous. I think right now, if you're a Robin Hood holder, because uh, just a few days ago, it didn't look particularly promising. And I think it's really interesting to juxtapose this versus Coinbase that went public through a direct listing back in April. There was a bit of a frenzy in the lead up to that. That thing traded up initially and then got creamed afterwards. And it really has been trading around its direct listing price of 250 for the last few months. This one, on the other hand, this is just an entirely different ball of wax now. It is out of institutional hands. It is in the hands of the Reddit of the Robin Hood traders, if you will. And what I find amazing about that, and we were just talking about it, was one thing when they started with GameStop, which was a single-digit billion market cap company. Then yeah. they moved on to AMC and some others, and they got pretty big at $30 billion, I think, AMC at its height. This is a $60 billion market cap company moving this way. This is the thing we're going to talk about, Gensler, later in the SEC. This is the stuff that they should be concerned about because it really comes down to market structure. Yeah, I mean, that... that 
PFOF, you know, uh, pay-for-order order flow, which is, is part of the lifeblood of Robinhood. If that were to go away, obviously, that is a monumental risk, not just to Robinhood, but I think it would be felt most severely at right. Robinhood. So it is sort of this, you know, when you look at it, when you have mirrors that faces mirrors and it's just this infinite bounce back of mirror, I feel like that's sort of what you're <laughs> alluding to with is the Robinhood shareholders who own Robinhood and Robinhood lends to them to buy more Robinhood. And, you know, we're sort of in this frenzy up. I, out of curiosity, I checked what it would cost to borrow Robinhood. They said not available, but if it does become available right now, it's 39% annualized, which, um, Actually, I've heard higher at other stocks and other, you know, various times for GameStop or AMC. But I mean, this, I, I, I can't possibly think about joining something like this. It did. I believe today was the first day of options trading that yep. probably added, of course, to the volatility and the frenzy. But interesting to watch. But. Not, way too wild a ride for me. Yeah, I don't know if it's a coincidence, Tim, that you saw declines in GameStop and AMC. AMC in particular down 11% on the day that Robinhood really caught some fire. So a little bit of a, of a zero-sum game, possibly, in terms of the, the capital that could be allocated. By the way, one of the reasons why possibly you know, Robinhood is, is not as attractive fundamentally is because the average account size is $3,500. So, I mean, you know, there, there may be limited funds to go around. Um, at least one third of this share was offered to retail. And, and I think as the discussion is going here, you know, one of the problems here in, in call it the, the Reddit community, GameStop community is, is that what is discussed will become reality. Last night, there was stuff all over Wall Street Bets about this was going to be a $70 stock today. Well, you know, of course, here it is. And, and, and it traded you know, three times the volume of Apple, et cetera. Karen's point about options, I think, is important in terms of the volatility today. Um, but, but also has been discussed here. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Um, these are not strong hands. This is not me picking on retail investors. Hear me out. Um, by definition, um, you know, strong institutional holders, long-term holders, folks that are not trading in out of positions are strong hands. Um, often that's what companies seek out at an IPO. That's not what they sought out here. And I get why. Um, but, but I think at some point that's going to be a major, major problem. There's, there's not an institutional base here. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's going to cost the company long-term. Yeah, so you guys just mentioned options, and, and I think this is from the S1. I think that, that uh, uh, Robinhood makes two times the amount of money that they make on an options trade that they do on an equity trade. We know that people are not paying commissions right now, but right. those options orders are really valuable to options market makers. There's wide spreads, and there's a whole host of other things um, that are going on there. So this has been a big part of Robinhood's business model, and I think I saw 3% of Robinhood's assets under custody Okay, are, are actually driving 40%, uh, 46% of the revenue. Okay, so that's what's dedicated to options. That was in Q2. So it's pretty interesting. Now, today, we saw options listed, and they went berserk. And as you would expect, a lot of the options are near the money, and they're short-dated. So what does that mean? It means short-term traders playing for near-term moves. They're trying to, and I think Tim just mentioned this, with a high-dollar stock like this, but there's a lot of one-lots and a lot of two-lots trading. And that's telling you that it is retail right now. And to Tim's point, that's not a great place you want to be. Will we find ourselves, if this thing goes berserk, and it starts having the sorts of moves that we saw in GameStop in January AMC, does Robinhood end up on Robinhood's restricted list? Well, that's <laughs> you know what I mean? Karen like, and I were talking no. about, about the potential ramifications here. What if the same thing happened to Robinhood no. stock, Robinhood stock that happened to GameStop in terms of the impact on the platform? Wouldn't that just be like the quickest spiral drain down ever if for some reason they had to restrict access to the stock 
they might have to get a, a capital infusion. I mean, I don't know how don't this know. thing plays out, but certainly that's not a good thing for the stock itself, and that would certainly make the pain that was being felt by retail investors who Robinhood might be lending to uh-huh. deeper. Yeah, there is another a whole another level of risk here. Just your point, though, on the options, 79,000 of the 70s Nuts. traded today. That is crazy. But also, we were sort of talking the game, if I were Robinhood, and remember, in the past, the balance sheet was an issue for sure. I would be looking to take advantage of this move as quickly as I could. I don't know how quickly that could happen, if, how long it would take them to get a convert ready, like Tesla did many times to great success. Uh, I'd be looking to do that. Yeah, you bring up a great point, though. There's been a lot of criticisms about how investment banks have priced a lot of these IPOs, right, and the kind of the giveaway. So if this stock was priced at 38 and it had opened at 70, which n- would not have been out of the realm of possibility sure. the way a lot of hot IPOs have traded over the last couple of years, you would have heard no shortage of Silicon Valley VCs screaming about the giveaway. It's just Wall Street giving away. But this time it traded down and then it got into the retail's hands. And I think that is really the most interesting thing. You just mentioned the idea of a convert. We just talk to a banker. We're not sure that they could actually break that lockup. But for these companies that have done direct listings, what we've seen them do is they haven't sold stock at that direct listing price, but they've gone on and issued converts. Okay, These are bonds that convert into stock at much higher levels at a period in time. And it's actually they've been doing it at zero coupon. I mean, it's like free money right now until it converts at a much higher price. So I, I think this situation actually begs the question of like, are we doing IPOs correctly? I think a lot of these different ways, we've seen SPACs, we've seen direct listings, right. and we've seen traditional. They're all going to be around. I think all of these situations make cases for the other ones to continue to exist. <laughs> all right. Let's uh, talk more about this massive move for Robinhood. Our next guest is known for running one of the world's largest brokerage firms, and he warns a Robinhood trading frenzy may turn into a perfect storm. Joe Moglia is the former chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade. He's now chairman of Fundamental Global and Capital Wealth Advisors. Great to have you, Joe. Hi, Melissa. Been a little while. It has been, and it's good to see you, yeah. though. What is this perfect storm you. that you're talking about? Well, I think one first, I think you begin with, uh, you take a look at the retail community. It is incredibly organized in a way that it has never been before. I think it's better organized than the AFL-CIO. Then you've got, we don't know exactly what it is yet, but there are institutional shorts out there. We don't know how significant, but they're definitely out there. If they're out there, there is a big issue with regards to the cost of borrowing as far as those shorts go. So that's out there. So today you've got Kathy Wood. Oh, yesterday she bought the stock. That's out there. I think Kramer even was positive with regard to what's going on. You've got a lot of activity in the options market. There are a lot of activity, I think, in 70 calls. There's a lot of activity between 20 and 30, uh, between uh, puts that are struck at 20 and 30. Uh, you've got uh, you've got a, a retail allocation that doesn't normally exist. And you've got an interesting lockup where you can have allow 15% of the stock can actually be sold right away. So you've got puts and calls. You've got incredible leverage. You've got a lot of things going on. You've got incredible volatility. But I think people got to remember volatility goes both ways. And that's what I think we got to pay attention to. But that's the perfect storm, in my opinion. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all fun and games to talk about as much as 80% up. It could be as much as 80% or more down at this point. And yeah, so, Joe, I, exactly. I wonder from your standpoint, if Ameritrade stock, AMTD once upon a time, had been up yeah. as much as 80% or, or down 80 I mean, mm. what, what would your take on the, that whole thing be? Is there any sort of risk to either the company itself or to the system? I mean, we're, we're thinking about stocks going up, but but... How about the flip side? Stocks going down eighty yeah, percent. Yeah. Okay. So I think that I think you're really hitting the nail on the head, Melissa. So Ameritrade, you know, we had our ups and downs, but for the most part, 
with incredible run over time and our holders were institutional fundamental investors right now again it's a different world i go back to you've got retail organized in a way that's never been where it's never been organized before and my last point is you got incredible volatility you go up and down per your point so i think the concern that i've got long-term investors really have pretty good education in the marketplace you know a lot lot ameritrade e-trade schwab we've always provided that but the day traders don't have that they really don't have that and what they need is far greater risk management so you can organize everybody to buy in in that perfect storm we just talked about but what happens you buy it you buy it at at 30 you buy it at 40 it goes to 50 at 60. at what point do you start to trim suppose the stock starts to turn around at what point are you protecting yourself? Do you have stop losses? Do you understand what's going on there? You've got significantly probably involved with, with puts and calls to your leverage up. You really know what that means? You really know what that means? Suppose you bought the stock at 70 because of the incredible enthusiasm. Your thing's going to go 100. But it doesn't. It comes back to 50. Joe, so if, I may, leverage, if I may sort of yeah, push back yeah, a little bit, yeah. because I'm sure Robinhood yeah. and, and some of the other platforms might say we provide a lot of education for investors that's on the platform if yeah. investors choose to look at it, just to give the other side of it. But the original question was, would there be any risk to Ameritrade itself, an online brokerage firm itself, the publicly traded entity, right. if the stock went right. down as much as 80 percent? Could there be risk to the company? Could there be risk to the system? No, you would have you would have a down move in the stock price, but frankly, we always had incredible, incredibly strong balance sheet. And as long as we had that, and we had a strong business, we had uh, besides the balance sheet, we had uh, we had multiple product, we had multiple sources of revenue. So the stock hitting a crater, that would that would have been tough for the people that own the stock, but it would not have a negative impact on the company. Joe, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. So Ameritrade hey, was Karen. later bought by Schwab. Uh, it was about yeah. thirty billion dollar deal, I think. Do you yeah. think they are getting wildly different valuations? They're embedded, E-Trade and Ameritrade, but in, a, in larger parent, Morgan Stanley and Schwab. But how do you view those businesses versus the valuation of Robinhood? <laughs> well, <laughs> again, there are two reasons why you might want to buy a stock. You have really good fundamental reasons, and you got technical reasons. You were doing it for a trade. So think about the, the Schwab, the TD Ameritrade as long-term holds. And think about what's going on right now is day trading, in effect, which is exactly what it is. But if you want to look at it fundamentally, all right, so use 2020 actual numbers. Use Schwab as an example. Uh, three Earnings 3.5 billion, 3.5 billion, and Robert Hood has 7 million. The market cap at 76, I don't know exactly where it goes, uh, for, for Robert Hood is about 60-something billion. Schwab's is 120 billion. That's half. 3.5 billion in earnings, 7 million in earnings. Average client client asset size per account at Schwab, 200,000. Median, median, median size at Robinhood is $240. Schwab, incredible balance sheet. Robinhood is still working on theirs. Schwab, incredible multiple ways to be able to generate revenues. Robinhood is still working on there. So in terms of value, you're a fundamental investor. And I'm not suggesting anybody should do this, but you would buy Schwab and short Robinhood. But that's not the trade, Kevin, right? That's not what's going on now. It's not a fundamental trade. It's a technical trade. Joe, great to get your thoughts. Always great to see you. Good to see you, Melissa. Thanks, everybody. Joe Moglia. Tim, that would be an interesting pairs trade, but you can't you can't short a stock that's in this... Reddit frenzy. 
Yeah, look, I, I, I think we're, we're doing the right exercise in, in trying to compare the fundamental businesses. And, and I because I think a lot of that conversation is also just talking about people trading the stock. I, on some level, I don't even really care. I, I think we're, we're trying to assess the value of this business. Uh, one of the things that's an important point today is, is that sometimes uh, the capital markets opportunities will allow the company to grow uh, to a place and you know, access to capital will change the future of the company. And that's, you know, that's kind of the byline for so many of these Reddit traders and this democratization, but they're 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 supporting companies they believe should just be uh, you know, have more access to capital, and they'll let them work out their future by. And this has actually been you know logic that you've heard espoused by Vlad Tenev and and the leaders here. I think ultimately part of the story here for for Robinhood is what are they going to do with this client base? How are they going to tie them in more long term? Grow their their balance sheets, whether it's it's IRA, whether it is actually lending, and, and you know I think there's there's a very powerful, loyal client base that needs to be monetized. And right now, no, it, it, the valuation makes zero sense. And, and the movement in the stock is a function, really, of how this IPO was conducted and who holds the stock now. We'll see where it goes, but I, I think the opportunity for the company is still extremely large, even though I hate the fundamentals right now relative to where the stock's trading. All right, coming up, we're all over some after-hours action in Uber, Roku, and Etsy. All three names on the move after reporting earnings. We'll bring you the details. And later, GM hits a giant pothole, the stock tumbling today. We'll break down that big move when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're tracking the after-hours action shares of Uber, Roku, and Etsy. All three stocks on the move right now in earnings. Let's get to Deidre Bosa with the latest on Uber's quarter. Debo. Melissa, disappointing quarter for both of the ride-sharing companies. Despite rebounding demand and cutting costs over the pandemic, both still struggling to make a sustained profit. Uh, driver supply shortage still in focus and Uber's outlook for gross bookings in the current quarter implies flat to little growth. CEO Darwakas Rashahi kicked off the call by telling analysts that it is adding drivers, but 
He didn't put the number in context, and he said that major cities like New York and San Francisco continue to see demand outpace supply, and wait times, he says, remain above their comfort levels. CFO Nelson Chai said that they should be able to pull back on driver incentives in the current quarter, but remember Lyft said yesterday it would have to spend more, so it's unclear whether Uber can actually deliver on this point. Lots of analysts questioning management here, but we didn't actually get a clear answer. Uber did manage to make money this quarter, Melissa, but that was due to its equity investments in Didi and Aurora. Didi, of course, has had a very rough public debut, but Uber got its stake early, so still in the black. Also this quarter, Uber sold its autonomous vehicle union unit to Aurora for a 25% stake. So that helped achieve that profitability. But again, that's unsustainable. And by the way, Uber CEO Derek Hazar-Shahi will be on Squawk tomorrow. You don't want to miss that, Melissa. I mean, saying that they should be able to pull back on driver incentives in the current quarter would imply that the driver shortage and the wait times, that, that those problems will abate within the quarter as well. It, it wouldn't they wouldn't go that far, though, because they yeah. said that major cities still are seeing wait times. So, yeah, I agree with you, Melissa. There was some conflicting information there. And analysts certainly picked up on this point. Nearly all the questions were about this exactly and about that driver supply. Yeah, it doesn't uh, add up quite yet. Uh, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Dan Nathan, what do you think of Uber? Yeah, it feels like we did this last yesterday at the, the same Lyft. time about Lyft. It's kind of the same story in a yeah. lot of ways. And listen, I think the truth is that, you know, down 35% here, it's filled in the entire gap from the vaccine announcements back in November. We knew that these were obviously very hard hit. We thought that Uber, given their um, reliance on each throughout the pandemic, that was a good thing. But they've been losing a lot of money. And I just think ultimately the rubber hits the road when you get to the public markets. It's been a rocky couple of years. And I think Dara and, and even the team at Lyft, they're, they're great managers. They'll figure this out. It just may take a lot longer. And then we got to get some of these supply demand dynamics in place. And we talked about it again last night. It's like, what happened right after both of these companies went public? The public market investors hated all those incentives. They hated subsidizing riders. Now you have to subsidize drivers and riders, and it's just not going to work for a while. So I suspect these stocks to probably move lower in the near term, and there's no valuation support for them really because we're valuing off of adjusted EBITDA. Why is it assumed that, that this whole thing will be worked out just because because it's, Shahi and, because they proved yeah. the, no, you know why they, they proved the case they proved that that ride hail is a thing right and so now these managers have to fix this product until we get to autonomous fleets and that's something that's probably further out than we all think but again once we have the pandemic in the rearview mirror I think we'll all be taking Uber and Lyfts again so are you saying though that to they'll figure it out does that mean they'll get to and EBITDA positive in a truer sense of what EBITDA positive is or that they'll get to this valuation? Well, I think that people will become comfortable with the valuations. I think Lyft will ultimately get sold to somebody else. I think the data that these guys have is going to be very useful as we get closer to autonomy. You know, Lyft on an enterprise value is a very small sort of company. When you think of some of the M&A, we're starting to see Square just use their stock to buy a $29 billion company. You know what I mean? So I think ultimately some of these big behemoths, maybe when the regulation gets a little behind us, you might start seeing more strategic deals. And I could see both of these companies really as a great partner for some of these big um, tech platforms. Sam, what do you think? 
I think inflation is killing these guys. Uh, and I think the things that we talk about as far as services inflation, but really labor costs, um, and even though you know they've had some, some victories on that front uh, in California, are, are part of the major issue here. So um, I think the, 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 the drop in demand, the surge in demand, the, 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 the chunkiness of the business, and it is, it's still impossible really to see where we are. Yeah, we're getting numbers uh, versus July 2019, and, and you know they're, they're actually you know, back to where they were in Latin America. Um, they're at 78 percent in the U.S. They're, you know, they're they're mixed in Asia. You know, great. And and yes, demand in London, Paris and New York is up 30 percent uh, from July. That's all fantastic. But the problem is we still don't really know where this equates to in terms of prices and where people are willing to pay. And I say what I said last night. Uh, prices have to come down or this is transportation as a service is not going to work with these guys. But I think the bigger part here is that they can't find competent people to do the job for the right cost. And I you know, that's that's an issue that I think a lot of other businesses are dealing with and theirs is particularly acute. Let's uh, turn now to Roku. That company's call just getting underway at the top of the hour. Julia Borson's been listening in. Julia. Well, Melissa, Roku shares are about seven and a half percent lower. This despite beating expectations on the top and bottom line with record revenue growth and stronger third quarter guidance than analysts had anticipated. But what's weighing on the stock right now, you see it down over seven and a half percent, is lower than expected active accounts growing to 55.1 million. So it added about one and a half million in the quarter rather than the nearly two million growth expected. Now, there was also a 1 billion hour decline in streaming hours in the quarter, falling to 17.4 billion. That number also falling short of analyst projections. And the company warning that player gross margins turn negative in the quarter on tight component supply costs and shipping constraints, warning also that that will continue into 2022. Roku CEO Anthony Wood weighing in on all the trends this afternoon. I mean, people are watching a little bit less TV than they were a year ago, uh, even a quarter ago, because they're going out more, things are opening up. Uh, But if you look at where they're spending their time watching TV, they're spending their time streaming versus traditional TV. I mean, even uh, even Roku's hours, which were up 19 percent, if you look at the streaming platforms overall, you know, the total hours for all streaming platforms, it was down about 2 percent. We were up 19 percent. Wood warning that varying rates of recovery from the pandemic across the world present an uncertain operating environment. Melissa, that uncertainty is something we've heard from a lot of these different media players. Yep. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston, Tim Seymour, I feel like we have the same conversation with a lot of these names, whether it be a video game company or another streaming company. I mean, how can it be as good as it was during the pandemic? And where are we in terms of valuation? It can't, but but I I do think also Roku, and we can say also what we say about a lot of these companies right now into earnings too is right. You know, Roku is up fifty percent despite a fifteen percent pullback into the numbers today. Was up still fifty one percent over the course of sixty odd trading sessions. You got a lot of good data on Roku coming out, you know, from some of these upfront comments out of the networks and connected TV, and that essentially uh, bookings were 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 doubled year over year, and forty two percent of those bookings were coming from first time advertisers. So the story here for they for their you know for what they do um, is very very high and, and I still think that that's something that is is you know where the the price will ultimately settle out in the stock. Um, I'm not surprised to see these numbers and these guideposts to get get weaker. Um, I think they're still in a pretty sweet spot. I don't chase the stock here, um, but I do think that secular story here is very much alive. 
Yeah, I would just say this, that, you know, back in February, the stock topped out near 490. It had a 45% peak to trough decline. It made it almost all the way back there. Mel, you asked about valuation, trading about 20 times sales. Maybe they do $2.8 billion in sales this time, $55 billion market cap. I just don't understand it. I don't understand how this company, given the behemoths that they are competing with and their reliance on ads uh, for a lot of the streaming, I, you know, to me, it doesn't make any sense. But I've said that for a very long time, so I've actually been wrong on it. I think it's really important to understand that in this market, you know, you could be really wrong, as I have, but like it still doesn't make any sense in a name like this. So could this thing go back to the levels where it bottomed out a few months ago and have a 40 percent peak to trough decline? I think so. I just don't know strategically where it fits in the in the newfound streaming like landscape we're going to have post pandemic. And, and he just said, uh, Wood just said, people are watching less streaming right now. Well, just wait. There's so many movies that are going to be coming out and so much TV. There's going to be a big backlog for it. Maybe that helps. But I think you're going to be dealing with decelerating revenue growth with sky high multiples. I think 55% last year, 55% growth this year. That's moving to mid 30s. It could go lower if it ends up being more of a disappointment. So it's not for me. All right. Coming up, we will get to Etsy results. That stock's sinking in the after hours. But in the meantime, here's what's coming up next. Is there something dark lurking in the markets? A former high-frequency trader joins us next to weigh in. Plus, shares of GM hitting a roadblock and driving lower. The traders are kicking the tires on this trade. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We are taking a real close look at market structure. And uh, I recently started, a, you know, uh, engaging on Twitter and to some of those Twitter followers that are writing about dark pools. We are looking very closely at this market structure that so many of our orders, retail public orders, are not going to the lit markets, but are going to internalizers, going to wholesalers who are taking the retail public's trades rather than sending them to the stock exchanges. That was SEC Chair Gary Gensler speaking exclusively to CNBC earlier today about the retail investor. But our next guest says the SEC needs to do much more to level the playing field. Let's bring in Dave Lauer, former Citadel trader and CEO of Urban AI. Dave, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on the list. I appreciate it. It's nice that Gensler is engaging with the Twitter community, but I know from looking at the Twitter community's comments about what Gensler said today that there is a lot of skepticism about whether or not the SEC can or will, in fact, do anything. Um, from your perspective, what do you think is the number one thing that the SEC should be focused on when it comes to this particular matter of routing order flow to wholesalers as opposed to lit exchanges? Yeah, I, I appreciate the skepticism. You know, I've been sort of in this conversation now for almost 10 years, and I've heard about holistic reviews of market structure and, and you know, the need to study. And I, I feel like it's 
you know, something that we hear a lot of and we see little action. And I, I think the most important thing that we should be focusing on from a market structure perspective is the fact that almost half of all trading is happening off exchange. Uh, and in some retail heavy names, you're seeing more than 70% of the volume executed in these internalizers or wholesaling systems. And that's damaging the markets. It's widening spreads. And it's a significant information advantage for all for those two firms, Citadel and Virtu, who operate a de facto, a de facto duopoly uh, in the internalization market. So I think that we should be looking at better disclosures. Uh, and I think we should be looking at rules similar to other countries. You know, this isn't a controversial thing. Canada, Europe, the UK, Australia all have very strong rules that prevent the uh, internalization and off exchange execution of small orders while preserving that function functionality for institutional orders. David, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So just so I, I understand clearly, when you talk about disclosure, are you saying make the dark pools transparent and that that should I, help solve the problem? Well, I would like to see more transparency, but I think we've done a good job there. I, you know, when I think better disclosures, I'm thinking around short positions and derivatives, that type of thing, the issues around failures to, to deliver and naked shorting. I think we need much better disclosures in that area, which is a major area of concern. Uh, and then in terms of off exchange trading, I think we should uh, require material price improvement uh, for small orders for off exchange trading. And in saying that, I'm only echoing what Citadel said in a comment letter in 2004, where they made the identical arguments that I'm making here. So I want to argue, Dave, though, that with um, payment for order flow effectively, but, but the notion that, that retail orders, retail trades are routed to internalizers and wholesalers instead of lit markets, that they are getting better pricing. Is there truth to this? They're getting pr better pricing relative to a wider spread. And this is so important to understand. Uh, the way that we route orders for retail, it means that those orders do not go to lit markets. And by taking those orders away from lit markets, you widen the spreads because everyone wants to trade against those orders. Those orders are profitable for market makers. So all I'm arguing is that we should have open competition for order flow. That should not be a controversial thing uh, in, in you know, capitalist markets. Get, get that, those orders onto exchanges. Let all the market makers compete for them. You would tighten spreads and you would still get price improvement and size improvement for those retail orders. So I, I'm convinced that net-net, we would see far better execution quality, even for retail, let alone for institutional asset managers who would benefit from those tighter spreads by 25% or more. So basically what you're saying is that, that right now the system is such that you might get a better price, but that's like saying you're getting something at a 20% discount after it's already been marked up 40% or something like that. Where you, right? I mean, exactly. basically, yeah. it, it looks better, but it's really not because that spread is so wide. That's right. And if you look at other markets around the world, they actually have lower execution costs than the U.S. If you compensate for the fact that the U.S. market is much bigger and you control for company size. Uh, but I've seen reports uh, that, that show that execution costs in markets with less off-exchange trading uh, are lower, and that's what we should aspire to in the U.S. Dave, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for having Dave, me. Dave Lauer. Um, Tim Seymour, I know we made, not we, some have made the argument on this show that things have never been better for the retail investor. Do you still stick by that at this point? 
Well, look, I, I, I think there's a comment here that you, you can make an argument that, that this, this duopoly that exists, and I'm not sure how we got here, and it's, it's a long story, but that this is affecting all market participants um, and, and that there is uh, you know, at least an institutional bias in that, yes, some of the larger orders um, could get routed here, and I think there's, there's an ability to actually see who's who. Um, but yes, this higher cost dynamic is something that, look, it, it's impossible to really measure where they would be if the market didn't exist with the dark pools with just two players. Um, you know, clearly, I still think the retail investor, uh, both in terms of their access to information, their ability to trade um, for free and, and the bid ask is not at a massive disadvantage to institutions. And in fact, I think the gap's never been narrower. Um, this is a market dynamic. And I think this affects both institutions and retail players alike. And I think that's Dave's point. Coming up, GM shares driving lower after missing earnings expectations. But is this pullback a good opportunity to get in? We'll dive into that trade ahead. And later, AMD shares soaring to a fresh all-time high. What we spotted in the options market that could point to a breakdown coming. Stick around. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of GM going in reverse today on the back of earnings. Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's got the details. Phil. Melissa, March 18th, 2020. You know why that date is important? That's the last time we saw a drop this big in a single day percentage-wise for General Motors. Stock down, what, almost 9% today. And this is all about expectations. The street's expectations versus what General Motors told everybody. The previous guidance for full-year earnings was 450 to 525. Today they came out and they said, look, we're expecting to do better, 540 to 640. The street was saying, what? We thought we were going to get much better than that. You're being conservative on us. We're expecting it to be at least 739 a share. That was one reason why the stock was lowered today. The other story is what's happening with EV development. This has been such a big driver for the GM shares over the last six months. Today, they announced two new commercial EVs as part of the 30 that they're going to be rolling out by 2025. And then when you talk about the bolt and the battery cell defects that have caused uh, some fires and have prompted this recall, is that going to scare people away from EVs? Here is GM CEO Mary Barr this morning. She says, no way. We work uh, every day to um, make sure that what we're doing is is validated and tested. When we find an issue like this, and this, again, happens to be two rare manufacturing issues happening in the same cell, we're going to address it. By the way, that recall impacts about 61,000 Chevy Bolts until those vehicles are fixed. General Motors has been telling people, Park it outside and do not leave it unattended when it's being charged. With regard to COVID, Melissa, we asked uh, Mary Barra today, are you going to mandate that all GM employees, not just those who are in your factories, but all GM employees, regardless of where they are working, be vaccinated? She said they are always evaluating the situation. They're assessing whether or not that might be an option. No news to report at this time. But like so many other companies, Melissa, they are looking at that question. Yeah. Did they say, Phil, about the recall of the Bolt, that it could cost as much as $11,000 per vehicle on average? I, well, it depends ultimately what, they can, what the, the final fix is. I have heard that number thrown around there. Um, I think what is the total cost on this is going to be $800 million. So you do the math there in terms of 60,000 vehicles, right. $800 million is how much they've already put aside for this. Um, they still need to finalize all the details surrounding that recall. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil Lebeau. Karen, what would you make of this uh, trading action today? 
Sad. I made sad out of it. But, you know, I think it was frustrating. Phil hit, hit it on the head of expectations. Mm -hmm. Well, the, they were, you know, act very excited about the number, but the expectations were higher and it clearly wasn't good enough. And I think they actually sort of made it worse during the conference call. So analysts were very frustrated trying to understand how they got to this new guidance when not that long ago they were sort of telling a different picture. And so the analysts kept saying, did you include the bolt? You know, was that included or not? And they're saying, no, this is, you know, they talked about commodity prices being higher. I think there was some sandbagging there. there I don't think the, uh, the chip supply issue, which has been, you know, for many auto companies, for many companies more broadly, that didn't seem to be solved. And I think they want to be conservative also with the Delta, you know, mm -hmm. they don't know. And I think they... Um, they did have some good news in there. They had, uh, they were able to sell higher end, sort of more trim, more, you know, decked out cars. Right. That's a nice margin. One other quirky little thing that was a negative was GM finance. So as the price of used cars has gone so high, normally when someone's lease is up, they give the car back and GM could profit on maybe a little spread between used car prices and where they got it back. But because it's moved so much, the cars that at the end of the lease people are keeping them and they're capturing ah. that used car benefit. So that's sort of running out. So that was sort of another little bit of a negative. Put it all in. The stock's not expensive. I think the analysts were very frustrated. So many of them in the street have much higher right. price targets. I'm long. I wanted to buy more, but I thought I got to just wait, see how this shakes out. Uh, it was it was disappointing. It did seem like that there were a lot of asterisks, if you will, Tim, to the guidance that they gave to the raise guidance in terms of, you know, the resolution of chip shortage, commodity costs, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these little things that we're not really sure of. And yet here it is, the guidance. Well, it makes you feel like you, you know, I wish they just hadn't had that June pre-announcement because that's that's the whole story here, in my view, and, and, and warranty costs. And, and if you take out these warranty costs, the full year guide is right where consensus was. So, um, I, you know, I, I've been very bullish on GM. I'm naturally very disappointed by this. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, this hasn't changed the fundamental story at all. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that we're talking about, I, I actually thought that the, the, the GMAC stuff was a bit of a tailwind and, and that some of those dynamics of this company have gotten so much better. Um, I, I think ultimately if you, you get back to uh, the guide, which obviously was materially raised, um, even though it was well below, I think the street was somewhere around 690. Um, you now came in at 590. They said 540 to 640. I mean, look, not only can you drive a, a hopefully an EV truck through that, um, we can all do the math on what, where that makes this company in terms of uh, their, their, their multiple. I, I hate this pullback. But, but this is an opportunity to buy this company. There was nothing that they told you about their core business and even their, their outlook. And they have been conservative. Let's be clear. And I, I guess I'd rather have them be conservative. This was about warranty costs. And, and this was about where they guided and where the street got ahead of themselves. All right. Coming up, Etsy shares plunging in the after hours on results. We'll dive into that trade next. And later, shares of AMD soaring to a new all-time high today. But options traders are betting the party could be over. We've got the details of Fast Money Returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back. We've got an earnings alert on Etsy. Shares are sinking in the after hours. The online crafting retailer beating estimates but gave weak revenue guidance for Q3. Etsy CEO will be on Mad Money tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, let's trade it now, though, Karen. 
Yes, I mean, for a while this has been too expensive, and I think, you know, when you're trading at such a rich P.E. multiple and you've benefited from the pandemic and maybe we're coming out of it, a small beat isn't good enough. And certainly a, you know, guide-ish, in-line, down-ish for third quarter definitely isn't good enough. And uh, we're not going to give full-year guidance. Also not so delightful. But, I, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with the business except the stock was too expensive. So... I don't I don't love it here. I think there's still room to go to the downside. But this is just this is we're going to see. We've seen it so many times. Expectations are so high. They can't meet them in anything. If it doesn't beat, it's not good enough. Yep. Coming up, we're breaking down today's monster move in shares of AMD. The stock soaring to a fresh all time high. Why some options traders are betting the gains for the stock are in. We will break down the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out AMD jumping to a new all-time high today. The chipmaker benefiting from the possibility that NVIDIA's $40 billion takeover of ARM may be blocked by British regulators, but not all investors are getting bullish. One trader in the options market is doing quite the opposite. Tony Zhang joins us now to break down the action. Hey, Tony. Hey, Melissa. So, uh, like you said, AMD is on a tear. We've seen six back-to-back sessions where the stock is up more than 3 to 5% each session. And the stock closed 38% above the 200-day moving average today. We tend to see these uh, mean reversion trades pop up whenever the stock exceeds about 30 to 35% above its long-term moving average. And the stock traded very actively today. 2.6 million contracts traded more than seven times the average daily volume. And one particular trade was quite interesting. 10,000 contracts of the October 115.90 put spread traded for about $7.50. So this particular trader laid out $7.5 million to bet that AMD will return back towards the 200-day moving average, which is just a bit below the $90 short strike that they sold on this put vertical. Karen, what was your take on, on this action? Well, it looked to me like it was this arm spread blowing out. I mean, obviously, AMD has been on an incredible tear, but when just the way that Xilinx was trading as well. Interesting, at some point, Xilinx won't be that far off of where it was before, given the run that the semis have had. So maybe the risk is getting out of it, but I'm not in it. Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, obviously a lot of these um, M&A deals, especially in semis, are getting a lot of scrutiny from China, that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe there's risk um, to that. And I wouldn't say that you have to run in and buy Xilinx if the AMD deal blows up because of that issue about cross-border approvals, that sort of thing. So to me, I, I don't think AMD can sustain this sort of move. We've got to give credit to Guy Adami. He was pounding the table since, I don't know, 75 bucks on this thing. I think here it's kind of gotten to like some sort of silly, silly land here. You know? Tim? It's not about valuation. It's certainly been about momentum and whether the right position and the right technology. But you're fading this move and you're certainly protecting it as this option trader is. All right. Tony, thank you for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Tim. Tim. How much time here? Now. <laughs> Karen. Okay. Karen, take it I'm away. Quick. You know, normally I like the three-day rule when something trades down a lot, but GM, I can't wait. I'm going to look to buy it tomorrow. Dan. Yeah, maybe Pinterest three-day rule here to play for a gap fill. All right. Tim, tweet it. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. If a friend asks how you're doing, 
And you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.